Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. That book is available as an audiobook, an ebook, and a paperback, but that ebook is free, free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. So get your copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees for free, and then come back with cash money for Banneker Bones and the Alligator People and Banneker Bones and the Cyborg Conspiracy. You're going to have a great time. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written some novels for older readers. More information on those, as well as interviews with thousands of Literary agents, editors, authors, all the world's best people are available at middlegradeninja.com. So head there to learn more. Uh, my guest today is none other than Mira Trian. Uh, Mira, how are you today? I'm is- good. How are you doing? Good. How are you? <laughs> I'm excellent. Steve, the audience knows that I often record this at night, uh, but you and I are work. I'm still having morning coffee. It's 9 a.m. We've got birds chirping outside. Well, it's a little cold. Um, I, I yeah. That's Awkward. still a nice way to kick off the day, I think. <laughs> it is. So Steve Douglas knows that I never uh, summarize anyone else's uh, background or anyone else's book. Why would I make you sit through me doing that when you're right here? It could do both. Uh, so if you would, give a Steve audience kind of an overview of your background, and we'll go from there. Great. Hi, I'm Mira Trahan, and I am the author of the View from the Very Best House in Town, which releases from Walker U.S. Candlewick on February 8th, uh, 2022. Thank you very much. Um, by way of background, I'm Indian American. My parents immigrated from India, and I was born in Washington, D.C., and I grew up in Virginia. Um, and then I have lived on both coasts and about a year right in the middle of the country. And um, I now live in Maryland with my family, um, and I have a law degree and practice law for over a decade, too. So that's the short version. And I was about to say, and my book, The View from the Very Best House in Town, it's a middle grade novel um, that I, I feel like I'm also bad at, at summarizing my own work, which I probably should get better at. But I like that my... Um, Publisher described it as part thriller, part friendship story, and part real estate listing. Thought that I was very pleased when I saw that description. That is a very distinct tagline. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I wanted to, to ask you a bit about law, although I should ask, what's your first memory of wanting to be an author? So that is a really good question because I think unlike a lot of writers, I just did not grow up wanting to be a writer. Not, um, I don't think it really occurred to me I could as a profession, which is funny because I grew up around po- books a lot, but poetry a lot. I remember when I was really young, my parents, um, with my enthusiastic consent, had me memorize poems. Then I was memorizing William Blake, and then when I got a little older, Shakespeare and I would write my own poetry um, once actually in a, my BC calculus class in high school, I had to do a big project and um, I kind of put it off as I was tended to do in those days, but I like to procrastinate. And so instead I wrote a whole bunch of poems about calculus for my calculus project, which went over actually surprisingly well. And One even got published in like, I think a county math newsletter or something. So I loved to write. It wasn't that I didn't like to write. And I read voraciously. And as I was reading, I would sometimes be like, 
if they had dropped that hint in like chapter three, this payoff would be much better. Like I was, I love that. And yet I don't know why it just didn't occur to me. Maybe I didn't think I had sort of the endurance to get from, a, to write a whole novel or whatever, but I always thought it would be something fun, but the idea that I would do it didn't really come to me as an adult. And actually, um, so I went to law school. I love the law. I think um, I loved the jobs I had in the law and what I was doing. Um, but I still sort of thought, oh, that, you know, writing a book is cool, but still in a way that was slightly removed from me personally. Um, and then um, I don't think this was the only moment, but I do remember I was practicing law and a friend of mine was leaving. Um, she was having a child, but she also said, well, you know, I'm a writer and I really want to take more time to write. And I distinctly remember um, this like kind of flash of like anger where it's like, why does Shelby get to go off and be a writer? But luckily I knew I liked Shelby and I was self-aware enough to be like, that was a weird reaction. Maybe I'm jealous of Shelby. Could that be what's going on there? Um, and so eventually a few years later when I stopped practicing, I was like, well, you know, I'm very lucky to live um, in Maryland and there's a great organization nearby called the, the Writer's Center that has lots of events and classes. And I decided to take, um, an intro class there, um, which I love. But even then, I think I wasn't really thinking of writing a novel. I thought, well, maybe I could, you know, try to get some poems published. Maybe I could write a short story. I had young children then, so I was like, maybe a picture book. Um, and it kind of very slowly built from there, which I think was good because I think um, there's a lot you have to do as a writer and giving yourself time to develop and grow and and you know is it's only a gift to you if you can take that time so that's a long long answer so no, not until I was way grown answer. up <laughs> it's the short answer kind of, uh, of long answers and I, I always think that if a writer knows going in a beginning writer knows how much work is really in front of them they're never gonna get started <laughs> totally true totally true so when um when did did you decide that you wanted to focus uh, specifically on on young adult, middle grade, and picture books, or have you decided that? I decided that, and I think, so some of that came, um, you know, I had picture book ideas, and I think there's a, not complete, but there's definitely an overlap to me between poetries and picture books, like just the care of each word, the sound of each word is really crucial in both. So I was working on picture books, but it's funny, in that first writer's class, um, my teacher, Susan Land, she's a short story writer. And she was, you know, actually didn't necessarily encourage people to write novels, but we were in the parking lot of my last class. And I said, you know, we did, the, she had had an activity on plot and looking at character and what they want and need and love and hate and kind of ways to analyze things and ways to kind of think about how your plot comes from character or vice versa. And through that, I had an idea um, about a story about a family, an Indian American family that would move from the Bay Area to a small town in Virginia um, right on the eve of 9-11, um, both areas where I had lived. And I told her about this just a random idea I had in the parking lot. And I... Uh, had done my first submission for, it was sort of my first ever submission for a writing class, which was a picture book, which um, 
was not great to be generous to myself. <laughs> um, and she said sort of what you really should be writing is that book you mentioned. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, but see, I can't write a novel. So that's like lovely advice. I mean, and it was literally years later before I seriously um, started writing that novel. And that novel was sort of on the cusp of middle grade and young adult. You know, the protagonist was in that kind of nether world of like ninth grade where, you know, in Kidlet, there tend to be fairly sharp lines and that's a tougher age to write. But um, as I did that, I also joined SCBWI. I also met a lot of Kidlet writers. I also started reading a lot more um, middle grade and young adult. And I, I love it. And I think, I mean, I was a voracious reader and I loved reading, but I don't think I remembered how much you could do in, you know, a book for children and how interesting the structure could be, how beautiful the writing could be that, and yet at the same time, like the plots still have to move. You can't, you can't be self-indulgent in, in Kidlet, I think. And I, I loved all of that. And so I sort of, that's what I started writing and that's what I've kept writing. And I think um, one thing that's really appealing for me is if you look at like Western ideas of novels, you know, or, or story, it's about change and, you know, and the protagonist has to kind of go from here to here. If you have a classic character arc, there are different ways of telling a story, but that's pretty much the classic way. And it's like, as kids, like there's so much room for that change. It's, I feel like it's so authentic to the characters where we all can look back and think about ways we change and how even between 12 and 10 and 12 and 14 and 16, there are so many big changes and so many big realizations that I think it's a really um, great area to mine for story. No, I 100% uh, agree, obviously. Preach um, <laughs> into the choir. Um, I, I, I often, it strikes me when people will try to pick out something that somebody did as a child or in their youth and say, well, that doesn't sound like you at all. And like, well, yeah, no, hopefully not. Hopefully <laughs> a tremendous amount of change has happened between then and now. Uh, and if that hasn't happened for you, I'm, I'm so sorry. <laughs> but maybe you can go write an adult novel about no. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So when you join the uh, Society of Children's Book uh, Writers and Illustrators, how, how, how long a process are we talking? Will you, you join the local writer's center and you're dipping a toe in or you just go, you dive in head first and join everybody? What's the yeah, period? It was, it was like, it was, so I think my toe dip was probably 20 about 10 years ago maybe around 2011 that was maybe like my, my first thought I could be off by about a but roughly then and actually interestingly after that I so I had this idea for a novel um and I decided to take a novel writing class um and I went to like two sessions and the teacher and I just realized I couldn't do it then like I couldn't get 25 pages of the novel I like with everything going on in my life I couldn't do it and I told the teacher that and I sort of expected the like even if she didn't say it her to be thinking well if you're really a writer you make the time and she was just like you know what like you're welcome anytime if you want to do it if you want to just stay in the class and not submit that's okay but she was also like yeah it happens there are times in your life where you, you can't write a novel, like that's okay. And honestly, the fact that she was so kind of understanding and 
I think it's given per- permission for me to be more understanding of myself. I think so often as writers, we beat ourselves up because like we didn't write yesterday or whatever. So, but she was like, like it, I do set deadlines for myself. I do try to meet them, but also it was really good. I think early on to have like, yeah, it's okay. M- maybe this isn't the season for you to start a novel. Like that doesn't mean anything about whether or not you can be a writer in the future. It just means this isn't the season. So that was maybe the next year. Then um, the Writer's Center, so they have some longer classes, like eight weeks. Now they actually have year-long classes, but they also had short classes, like two-hour sessions, which were awesome because you could go from eight to 10 on a Saturday morning, you know, get in your writing and kind of, and then just go on with everything else you had to do that day. And at one of those sessions, I mentioned to the instructor, Catherine Johnson, I was interested in writing for children and she's done romance and mystery and other stuff. So she's very familiar with all the, like RWA at the time and and mystery writers. And and so she was like, oh, there's SCBWI. So this was a couple years in and I was maybe sort of trying my hand at a picture book, but just really dabbling. Um, Actually, you know what I was doing then that I think was like the most helpful thing in my writing. In my first class, Ursula Le Guin's book, Steering the Craft was um, recommended. And I highly recommend that book. And it has lots of craft exercises. I actually spent a lot of time just working through craft exercises, which I think later on, you know, I was building muscles I didn't know I needed, but um, was really, really helpful. So um, anyway, long story back to it. She she recommended SCBWI. So I I Google it and, oh, look, there's registration. There's going to be a conference in a couple months. So I just, I went to... um, my first SCBWI conference and met some nice people and, you know, eventually joined a writer's group. But even then it was still, you know, another couple of years before I tried to write my first novel. So that would have been in 2016 that I, no, 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 2014, that I, late 2014, like 2014, 2015, I first tried to write a novel. Um, so it's it's a process as you're seeing. It's not, you know, um, but then once I was trying to write that novel, I was quite seriously trying to write that novel. Um, then it wasn't a toe dip. It was something that I sort of tried to set some deadlines with and, and go from there. And so I basically wrote it in 2015, sort of late 2014 to early 2016, kind of in that, maybe it was about a year and a half for the multiple drafts, because I probably did four or five, five drafts maybe before I went. Um, and my drafts are usually like, I mean, a start to finish draft, not a fixing a typo draft, like real drafts. So, um, I don't let my, myself count those as extra drafts. Those, those are <laughs> and that just happens yeah. whenever. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But I mean, real drafts. So that was, you know, maybe a, a little less than a year, rough, about a year and a half, give or take. With, and with, that's including the I would usually take a couple month break in between them. So, you know, write for two, three months, take a couple month break, right? Um, and then I um, started querying. Um, and that was a very long process for my first novel, but I did get representation um, and then started writing my second novel. And, but that first novel didn't sell. Um, and I landed up switching agents. Yeah, so that novel... I mean, it it was, it sort of got the like, really like it, but just don't want, you know, that kind of that amorphous feedback that I think when you go on submission is awfully hard to hear because you don't entirely know what to do with it. But 
I mean, but that's a big part, I think, for a lot of writers, that can be a big part um, of submission. I know one of my favorite YA books of all time is a book that my mentee wrote that hasn't sold and it's gotten really close. And that's, you know, an unfortunate side of the business. It's so competitive that there's, you know, there's work that is great, but just doesn't find the right home. I mean, in retrospect, I'm glad my current book is my debut. I feel like it's a better book, but um, so I wrote that one. Um, in the meanwhile, I landed up switching agents. Um, and then, so I finished this book and then it was a while before I signed with my next, I mean, months before I signed with my new agent. So that was 2019 that I signed with her. Um, and we went on sub in 2020 and that's Molly yeah. Kerhan. Pardon? Yeah, Molly Kerhan, yeah. Gotcha. Uh, and the rest is history. She's and the rest is history, as they say. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So so I feel like I was working at it for a while, but um, and that might sound like a slow process, but I also think it's actually pretty typical for what, like when I talk to my writer friends, I mean, the whole idea, it's like, like the decades long overnight success, right? Like, <laughs> Well, 2011 to, I'm talking to you here in 2021, uh, you're yeah. debuting in 2022. Yeah. That's um, mind-blowingly fast um, by comparison to, to several of the uh, folks we've talked to on the show. <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny. My non-writer friends are like, you're so persistent. You wrote two books. And I'm just like, oh, you have no idea. But <laughs> I mean, and it's sweet. And they're being complimentary, but it's like once you're once you're in it, Rob, you know the truth. <laughs> like it's a long haul. As you said, it's a long haul. If you knew what, what was ahead of you, you might not, you might not get in. But obviously, I'm very glad I have. Well, prior to 2011, did you do any, did you keep a journal or any kind of writing? You know, no, not really, no. Um, but, um, and I was practicing law. And the thing I loved about law always was, my favorite part was always writing. I did a lot of appellate work, which is, you know, the appeal. So you're not, you know, in the courtroom, you're writing about what's there. And then my last job as a lawyer I was put, putting together programs, but I was also editing articles and writing stuff up. And obviously the output is very different when you're a lawyer and when you're writing for kids. But I think there are skills that are really transferable. First is like, you have to sit down every day and write if you have to write. And sometimes you're not sure exactly what you're gonna say, but you have to try to get something down on the page and know you're gonna revise. Um, so that was helpful. Also, um, my work was always edited by someone else and, and not kind of like it is now in the sense like, well, you know, what are you trying to say here? What's this argument of, you know? And so having to be in that back and forth with someone else um, is great um, for when you actually have to work with an editor or if you're listening to critique partners. So I think that was really helpful. Um, also, you have to really think about audience. Obviously the audiences might be very different, but you like fundamentally, even though I do try to write for myself and sometimes I am my audience just because if it's not amusing to me, then it's probably not going to be as amusing to anyone else. But eventually you have to think like, well, you know, who am I talking to here? And finally you have to think like, what's the point? I'm like, sometimes when I'm writing a scene, it can be really overwhelming. 
right? Because I'm like, I know I'm here and I got to get here. What, what am I, at least that's how I feel. I don't know if you ever feel that way writing a scene, but it's just like, what, what am I doing here? And sometimes I'll be step back and be like, okay, what are like the two things, Max, I want to get a, like the reader to get out of this. And then I can build up to it and figure out how to get there. But like in this scene, there's going to be a lot of, I don't want to say talk because I think it all builds a character and all builds a mood and all builds a setting. But fundamentally, there's like something the reader has to take away. I might not even want the reader to know explicitly like, oh, I'm taking away this one thing that's showing versus telling. But, um, it, but as a lawyer too, sometimes you might have lots of case law or there might be lots of history and it's all important to build your case. But at the same time, you have to know what's like the one or two things for this section that I want people to walk away with. And how do I write something so that in the end, that's what they're gonna remember. Um, so even though I wasn't writing fiction, I think those skills I was working on and I think that's definitely helped me as a writer. Well, it sounds like uh, much more, I don't know if comfortable is the right word, but if you're getting feedback on what you're writing, but it's, my, it's, it's an objective thing that you're writing about factual information and law, as opposed to here's a whole piece of my heart, go ahead and, and critique it. <laughs> that, that oh, might sure. And, and, sure, and yes, I have, I, I will say emotionally, it is easier to have your legal work <laughs> <laughs> critiqued, but I do think it, um, but I do think it does. And I had some bosses who, who I love, but were not, um, you know, would be like, well, what are you trying to argue here? Well, why didn't you just say that? So that did help me be like, okay, you know, like, and depersonalize it a little bit. When it is a piece of your heart, it's a little harder to depersonalize. And I've certainly, um, you know, gone back and been like, <laughs> but um, although I will say, I mean, I think it, in terms of feedback that right as a writer there's sort of two kinds one is from sort of your agent or editor which you can disagree with but you probably want a really good reason for disagreeing with it because at that point you know you're all in it together to make this work and hopefully they have a similar vision to you and all of that but there's also feedback you know, from critique partners or people who don't know you or a paid SCBWI critique. And I've also given them too. So I'm not even saying that like, this is just a receiver. Sometimes people don't always understand what you're trying to do with your work. And it's okay to get feedback, I think, especially when it is a piece of your heart and not, you know, as a lawyer, something you're just, you know, giving to a judge and someone says, well, this argument could be written more clearly to be like, that's maybe not even bad feedback, but it's, that's not the story I want to write. And I feel like that's one of the hardest things as a writer to kind of learn how to sift through those things. But it is okay to, especially, you know, if you don't feel like the person understands what you're trying to do to say, you know what, that's, you know, I'm not necessarily to them, to them, you say, thank you very much because of taking the time to read your work, but internally saying, you know what, I don't think that like that doesn't feel right for what I'm trying to do with the story. Like that's, that's okay. It's your story. So one nice thing about some, some types of feedback is even if it's, it's off the mark, that's I can't wait until you write your version of the story. That's going to be what you just suggested. Um, but if you're, if you're saying that you're having a problem with something, even if your solution isn't right, 
the way you're describing the problem will help me figure out my solution, which is still made of wind. Yeah, a hundred percent. And there was one thing on this book um, where I disagreed with my editor, I thought, but I also agreed with, I think she's brilliant. And I agreed with, you know, like 98% of everything else. So I thought, let me try it. And I was like, not doing it. And then I thought, well, you know what, maybe the problem isn't this scene. Maybe it's sort of, I mean, I can tweak this scene a little bit, but maybe what's really happening is the scenes leading up to this scene aren't written in the way that would give this scene the payoff it is, right? So what I really need to do is not necessarily tweak here, but kind of go back and find all the other places I can tweak so that in the end, this chapter does feel right, you know, right? So exactly, the solution isn't just here, but maybe it's identifying something where I can make it stronger other places in the work. But then, but every now and then, you know, someone just, I mean, I remember this was in a short story class I took at the Writer Center and I was writing this story that was kind of very coming of agey and the, some people in my um, group really wanted it to be like a romance novel where there was a cat fight between two girls. And I was like, <sighs> but I remember going back and being really sad and like, well, they don't get my work. And it was like, now, like, I feel like I'm, I, they just, they just wanted a different story that I wasn't writing. And like, that's cool. They can, they can go read the cat fight romance, but I don't want to be the one to write that. Do you know what I mean? So, so sometimes it's like, yes, you're identifying a problem, but sometimes, especially if it's, and I think that's the difference, especially if it's not someone who's also invested in the work or doesn't necessarily know you as a person, sometimes it's just not the best feedback because they want a different story altogether and no one's wrong, but that's not the story you're writing. And it's okay to be like, okay, I'm not writing the catfight romance. We're good. Everyone in the Petite Partners has had a suggestion for me to add zombies, and they never do. <laughs> well, <laughs> while we're uh, talking about uh, writing and, and technique, we I had noticed right when we started that we both had, for those of you watching us on YouTube as opposed to listening to us, we both got bookcases behind us. The only um, book behind me that wasn't written by either myself or a guest on the show is Story by Robert McKee, and I see it right there over your left shoulder. Uh, well, no, I guess it's your right shoulder on, on that side. Uh, when did you come to Story by Robert McKee, and how can we heartily endorse this for everyone listening to us and, and how it's going to change their lives? So first, que first half of your question, um, kind of to the story of how did I get into this? So I decided to write, take a stab at my first novel. And the one thing I learned that allowed me to take the stab at the novel was that I just didn't have to get it right on the first try. So I basically just wrote down everything I knew about the characters. And then I was, and kind of maybe put some scenes in. And then I was like, okay, well, like this isn't even really novel shaped. Like it's not even just not a novel. It's not even really novel shaped. It's just stuff. But at least I was like, so the next thing I'm going to do is figure out story structure. Like when you have stuff, how do you make a story? And I was at an SCBWI conference and um, I saw Mary Quattlebaum, who's just a wonderful person, a writer, a teacher, and she had taught a friend of mine. I introduced myself and we were chatting and she teaches at um, the Vermont College of Fine Arts um, program. And I was saying, you know, I 
it seems like a great program. It's not something I'm going to do right now, but I really need to learn about story structure. And she said, well, like the textbook, you know, we recommend a story by Robert McKee. So I was like, I believe in taking breaks between your drafts so you can come at your work fresh. So I was like, in this break, I'm going to learn story. I'm going to, I'm going to figure out story structure. And I don't want to say I entirely did, but this book went a long way in helping me figure that out. Um, and I think one thing, why everyone at home, why it will change your life, why it was so helpful to me is, at least to me, the most helpful parts, I'm curious if you found this too, was there a lot of movie scenes that um, he breaks down and kind of analyzes and analyzes a lot about how, at least my, my big takeaway is like, in a scene, kind of emotion has to change. Like there has to be, you have to be going from kind of either here to here or here to here, but there's there's gotta be an emotional shift. And he really analyzes how that happens in scenes of movies that I was familiar with. And that really helped me learn, not just theoretically like, oh, you need three arcs or, oh, you need this arc, but like how to apply it in a very real sense. And I still, when I'm writing a scene today, will be like, if a scene's not working, I'll think like, what is that shift? Like, what am I going for? What What's the movement in this scene that needs to draw the reader in? And often um, if the scene's not working, it's because of what Robert McKee identified as, you know, well, it's lacking what Robert McKee identified as necessary, which is that shift from going from one place to another. So I think it's terrific. And I think it also, because of its examples, take something that I feel like is so amorphous and makes it real. What do you think? I 100% agree. Uh, <laughs> not that Mr. McKee uh, need, needs my endorsement. Uh, in fact, the, the day I felt like a real writer was the day Robert McKee liked a tweet of mine. And I said, ah, oh, well. <laughs> you can't get up now. There I am. Um, I've got a story on audiobook, and I re-listened to it. Um, almost every book I, I have re-listened to it uh, right at the start. And usually around January when I'm getting up, all right, what are we doing for the year? What do we got going? Let's listen to McKee. Let's get the, the wheels turning in my brain. So I can't can't recommend it enough for all you writers out there watching or listening. Uh, every time I lead a writing workshop, that is one of the primary texts that I draw from. Uh, and I try and drill it into people's heads. If you learn nothing else from this workshop, just read this book. If I can't reach you, maybe McKee, you can, and and, and it was, will still have been a wise use of your time. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I totally agree. I feel like I, you know, saved a lot of tuition dollars just pouring it all into, you know, studying that book. There's a lot of great writing guides out there. I, I wouldn't want to miss out on, I wouldn't want people to miss out on all the other ones. John Gardner's written several. Um, I'm sure other than McKee, what are what are some of your favorites? Yeah, I loved Ursula Le Guin's Steering the Craft. Um, she has really practical exercises. Um, she has some on point of view that I found invaluable in my work and I still go back in, but she also has... Um, just a great way about her. Um, I feel like she's both sort of encouraging but strict, but like she makes the point, like I think it's great to have a critique group, but she also makes the point that like, you know, a couple hundred years ago, people didn't have critique groups and the way they learned was by reading other books and just studying other books. And I find that I also have mentor texts. And I think in some ways it's, for me, it helped me realize like there's not one right way to do this. 
you, you have to do whatever is helping you at the time, get the skills you need. But also, um, I think she does a great job of breaking down things. So she has point of view, but she also has sentence structure. So there are activities like writing a paragraph that's all one sentence and then writing a paragraph where no sentence is long, I mean, longer than seven words, right? And like, so what, what, what's the difference there? Like, what's the, what do you choose to write about? At least, I don't know if she says this. This is what I was thinking. You know, what's the subject matter? What are you doing when you do a, you know, 200 word long one sentence paragraph versus a bunch of short sentences? What's the effect? So it really, um, they're so practical, but again, the more that you, um, do those things, the more, the easier it is, I think, when you're actually trying to sit down and write a novel because you practice those things. But the other thing is, I just think um, she's so encouraging that I've, like, you know, when my novel didn't sell, for example, and I was feeling bad, I just went back and read that book because it made me happy about writing again and kind of made me excited to get back and reminded me that the reason I was doing it although it's great if your novel sells, was not to sell the work, but because I actually loved words and I loved stories and I wanted to do that. So, um, and she has also, she has um, a kind of like McKee, but different because maybe I'm less literary, but I've seen a lot of those movies, whereas I hadn't read all the books that she has excerpted from because she has a lot of classic novels, but she will take, you know, three or four paragraphs and then break down, like, look how you know, whether it's for description, whether it's for the passage of time, whether it's, you know, look how they did that in this sentence or look how they shifted point of view in that paragraph. Like, it's really, again, helpful to see like what actually, you know, are the greats doing with one sentence. So, you know, it gives you a chance to try to imitate something like that if you need to do something similar in your own work. So I, I love that one. But I mean, I've got a bunch more on my shelf too. So the writer's journey the magic words. book it's escaping me at the moment the magic words yeah i've got that there oh that's a perfect one yes <laughs> Cheryl klein is it's just is just a an absolute treasure of a, of a person uh with all kinds of wonderful advice the best way to learn about writing of course is to start a podcast invite authors to come on it and tell you about their writing habits but if that if that takes more of your time than you're comfortable with listen to this show I Listen to them exactly, uh, and then uh, seek out writing guides. But yeah, always be reading, of course. And I, I, I know that's true. Did you change your reading habits when you started uh, approaching writing specifically, or were you? I'm sorry, your your reading habits, or were you always just a big reader consistently? I was always a big reader consistently. Um, and as I think I said, like I would, you know, even when I was quite young, would be like, well this part's not realistic and they should have set it up there. So I was doing that without realizing what, like I didn't even think about that as relating to writing in any way. I just thought like, this book would obviously better be better if they had done it this way. Like why didn't, you know, but, um, but I do remember going to an SCBWI conference and hearing like, well, you have to read what's up to date in your own, you know, age category and genre, but you should be reading in the other age categories and genres. Oh, and you should be maybe reading adult and you should, and I'd be totally overwhelmed because I think I thought I had to read it that all in like two weeks. And again, one good thing about it being kind of a long haul is that, um, I do read a lot. Um, but, uh, what's changed a little bit is I found 
And I wonder if this is because I'm sort of trying to be selfish for my own crafty end, like craft, like writing crafty ends is I go through phases. So I'll like go through a middle grade phase where I, you know, I might be reading four middle grade novels a week. Like I'm just, it's like every free moment I get, I'm just reading, reading, reading. But then, you know, I might go through an adult phase, you know, where I'm reading a lot of adult, like I, I tend to kind of, and then I'll go through a YA phase, um, picture books I can sprinkle around because they're nice and short, but I do go sort of through phases of reading one chunk and then another chunk. And also while I'm reading, um, I will sometimes very consciously look for mentor texts. So, um, like if I hear a book that might have some similarity to my book, even if it might be a different genre and a different category, but maybe they use chapters in a certain way, or maybe the passage of time is similar or something. I will seek out those books so I can try to find some mentor text to kind of help me with whatever I'm working on at the time. So, but. So if you're working on a, I don't know, like a science fiction story, you might pick up Ursula Le Guin, you might pick up Hugh Howey, a couple of great sci-fi writers to kind of help you hone in or. Yeah, exactly. But I might even be like, oh, let's say I'm working on a science fiction story, but um, I also know that it like it's science fiction, but not actually in the future, but in an alternate universe that maybe it's in the past or maybe there's X kind of technology or, you know, like there's something specific. I might try to read a book again it the specific technology might be different but like how do they do that or if there's a book that i know has a big flash like kind of alternates between let's say it alternates between our world and a science fiction world that kind of goes back and forth i might look for that it, it might be almost more structurally looking for similarities in some ways definitely also definitely also like looking at the greats and the classics but then Sometimes this will be like between say draft three and four where I'm just not quite getting it. I'll be like, you know, what would I want this to be like? And it's funny because the books I'll often pick might be very different. It's almost like in, just for me, it might be very different in terms of tone or age category or whatever, but maybe I'll notice like, oh, they go 80 pages, I'm thinking of a specific book, they go 80 pages with this one narrator, and then they switch narrators somewhat unexpectedly and go 40 pages with that. And then, so maybe if I've got, you know, two points of view, I don't need to actually switch off every chapter. Maybe I can go for larger chunks here and larger chunks there, and how would that effect be? Would, like, would I be doing something similar? I'd say more at the start of a project, I'll do the like, oh, I'm going it, to, it's science fiction, so I'm going to read the greats. And then more in the middle of a project, I might be like, I'm just not nailing this the way I want to be. Let me look at, you know, where do I see the flaws in my own work? And what are some authors that seem to have, you know, managed that much better than I am doing at the moment? Um, and I'll kind of go that way. So, so both. You know what I've also found? I don't know if you've found this. I mean, maybe because you're doing the podcast and you see other authors or real people. I feel like I'm a much more generous reader. Like, I think when I wasn't writing, I'd be like, like, they should have done this. And now I approach it like, good job. It's so hard to do this well. <laughs> like, yeah, sure. Yeah, they could have dropped a hint. Like, before, so why did they drop a hint in chapter three? But maybe that would have ruined the pacing a little bit. I don't know. They're doing great. Like, I am much more uh, forgiving because maybe I want people to have that same forgiveness with my work if I don't quite nail it the way they want. Um, no, you just realize it's really hard to do well. 
you know, and there's so many competing things in, in any given book. So a little bit of both. When I when I was reviewing books at the blog, my policy was always I only review the positive aspects and never the negative ones, which is no kind of book review at all. But that's okay. <laughs> And I was I was I was still learning the the best parts of the books and saying the nicest things and looking at them with the most favorable eyes that I that I possibly could, uh, and I do find that that's useful because looking overly negative at everything I did that in college. Uh, at one point, I was trying to um, oh what's his name, uh, the author of East of Eden and John Steinbeck. Mm-hmm. I was trying to. Um, uh, write a piece that if John Steinbeck were to read it up in heaven or wherever, he would know where he messed up this novel. I'm like, you know, going a little hard on John Steinbeck. He he did plenty of great things. He doesn't need this this kind of criticism. But it does annoy me a little bit when I'll read something that's just so glaringly obvious that should have been fixed. And I think of all the people I know, and you know, you you said that the, the best YA novel you've ever written isn't published you know there's only a select few spots. And when you see some joker took one of those spots and didn't do the homework, didn't master their craft ahead of time, there is a little bit of annoyance, not just for me, but for all the other authors I know that could have had that spot that, that came with their game face on. They, they knew what they were up to and this author just got lucky or who knows what happened. Yeah, yeah. So long rambling uh, way of saying, I see both sides. well and I also I think I pick like maybe one reason I also kind of like more what I read I'm reading is because I am sort of so consciously picking it like oh I'm you know it might be an author I have a couple degrees of separation with or I've picked this book because I've heard it's good at, at the specific things I'm doing so I'm kind of I'm better at curating what I'm reading so that I'm getting you know my bookshelf. I feel like there's a lot of excellent books there, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of on Twitter or whatever I'm getting, I feel like just first class book recommendations. So, and you know what else I actually, to your point, maybe I don't, I used to always finish a book no matter what. And I've actually started not finishing like for the first time in my life, maybe it was the pandemic. And I was just like, uh, I started occasionally not finishing books. So maybe I'm also not getting annoyed because if I'm reading the book, I must like it because I'm sticking with it. Whereas for my whole life, I would I would be sitting next to my husband on a plane be like, I hate this book. And he'd be like, you can put it down. I'd be like, no, I can't. But and then I'd be like, two pages I'm like, oh my God. He'd be like, really, you can stop. I'm like, I cannot stop. But now I'm like, uh. You know, life's too short. My to be my to be read list is way too long. Next, you know, maybe it's uh, leftover. Maybe this, this is me projecting, but it's leftover from the old book it days, where if you read so many books, you get a free pizza, and if you didn't read that book, you don't deserve pizza. <laughs> I did do the reading Olympics in grade school, where yeah, you had to you had to finish each book to qualify for any level of medal. So, so maybe that is it. But I'm a firm believer that there's different definitions of the word reading um, when, when you have to get something uh, read. And if it's a book that you're not enjoying, but you feel that you should know because it's big in your genre, I'm fine with, with skimming. 
Uh, with, you know, reading, getting the general gist of it and putting it down. If you're not having a great time, life's too short. Read the the book that gets you passionate, that energizes you, that you're really enjoying. But some reads, like a good James Patterson novel, that's not meant to, you're not supposed to sit down with a highlighter and, and this is the most brilliant writing I've ever seen. You're not going to find it there. That's not what a James Patterson novel is there for. That's to get you through the, 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 the ride on the airplane. And if you read it in that style, it's perfect for that. Yeah, no, and, and that's true. And that's true. The specific book I was mentioning on the airplane was was significantly worse than that and rather offensive too. So I, I do want to, but yes. Offensive <laughs> <laughs> is, is a whole other thing. <laughs> yeah, no, it was a whole other thing. But yeah, definitely. Um, and I think that's the other thing. I hope I always felt this way, but I realize even more as a writer is that there is a place for all kinds of work even for myself personally, you know, there are times when I'm like, I just can't read that, times when I'm dying to read a book, you know, like there, there's a place for so many different kinds of books and, you know, we're lucky to have as many as we do and hopefully that will broaden even more. Even when I, I'm don't like a book like I I do not like Twilight I've said this before it's not my read but I did read it and I did appreciate what went into it and why it worked as well as it worked and when something when a book is that big and a lot of people do love it I feel it's my responsibility even if I don't love it to understand why it's beloved yeah and I do think that's I mean that was one thing I learned at an early SCBWI conference someone said something like like every book is published for a reason and you don't have to like every book, but if you can figure out what that reason is, it will help you as a writer. Just to know, even if it's to know like, oh, that's not, I understand what that is and that's not what I'm trying to do. Like that's okay too, but just understanding, you know, what's out there and why it's out there can be really helpful. But there are so many great books too. I mean, I feel like I read a lot and I feel like I barely you know, there's still so many books I've been meaning to read or haven't quite gotten around to, so. Well, every once in a while, there's, I mean, and I talk like I'm only reading as bad books. That's not true. I, I'm endlessly delighted by the number of wonderful books that I'm, I'm coming across and, and, and surprised by, oh, that's, I, I thought this would be good, but that's so much better than I, I ever thought it would be. Um, and that that happens frequently as well. But once in a while, there's a book that just really gets you reinvigorated about uh, reading. And I'll read five more books looking for another version of the experience I just had with this tremendous novel. Yeah, yeah. No, that's the best. That's the best. And there books like that can also get you invigorated to write. Like um, my agent, who is just absolutely wonderful on every front, um, but she recommended a book she liked um, when we were talking about um, a project and just reading that, even if I was like, even if I can't write this well, it gives me something to aspire to. Like, I just, I love this book. You know, it was so from the first page, in fact, it was Spinning Silver, which is right here. But from the first page, I was just like, so captivated. And, but it was also really fun. And I was like, oh yeah. This is like, this is why I want to write. I want to create stuff, not this in the literal, but like stuff like that. Like, this is, this is fun. It's smart. There's so much there. Like, you know, and it, it's so exciting as a writer too, to be like, oh yeah, you know, that's what, you know, this is, this gives me something to aspire to in a really fun way. Not a daunt. I mean, it's always daunting because it's writing and it's all, 
as you said, just a lot, but, but it's really fun. It should be hopefully fun too, most of the time at least. Well, it can be daunting, but it can also be just a real nice uh, reality check. Like, hey, if you want your book to be on the shelf next to these books, this is where you need to raise your game to. Exactly. But sometimes raising your game can be fun. Like, oh, yeah, humor. And oh, yeah, like interesting twists. Like, for me, I'm definitely someone who loves revision way more than the initial drafting. And so I think maybe also that's another reason why I kind of enjoy it. Like, oh, yeah, like... There's all this fun stuff to raise your game, whereas for me, the initial drafting is is just tough going. So maybe when I'm reading and making a connection with my work, if it's at a point where I'm making a connection, I'm closer to the revision phase. Do you prefer revision or drafting or are you? Um, I love the freedom of drafting, but I start to feel like there's a little bit of despair that comes with drafting because I don't know for sure where it's going to be. Whereas by the time you get to revision, like I know how this ends. I'm confident it will eventually be great. And I can start to see it really forming into itself. So revision is definitely more comfortable. And it's always like, well, the first thing I want to do when I start a new project is go back and read the old one. No, I like that. We just fixed it. Everything's finished. I don't want to be at this place of uh, everything is uncertain and up in the air a little bit uh, at the start again. But I, I want to talk uh, about your writing process and tease that up, but we should probably do it as we talk about the view from the very best house in town, which is available February 8th. Uh, so Tuesday, esteemed audience, as you're listening to us, uh, go ahead and pre-order your copy. Or um, if you're listening to us after Tuesday, I'm so glad you found us. Go ahead and get your copy right now. Um, so with that really uh, ham-handed segue, let's <laughs> talk about Thank you very uh, the, much. the very best house in town. If you would give us an overview of the novel and we'll vote act and we'll talk about your process for creating it. Sure. Is it okay? Because again, I think they've written it better than I, I can. So I'm just going to read it. Sam and Asha, Ashan and Sam, their friendship is so long established. They take it for granted. Just as Asha takes for granted that Donnybrook, the mansion that sits on the highest hill in Corville is the best house in town. But when Sam is accepted into Snabbish Castleton Academy as an autistic miracle boy, he leaves Asha, who is also autistic, to navigate middle school alone. He also leaves her wondering if she can take anything for granted anymore. Because soon Sam is spending time with Preston, Asha's nemesis, whose family owns Donnybrook and, since a housewarming party gone wrong, has forbidden Asha to set foot inside. Who is Asha without Sam? And who will she be when it becomes clear that Preston's interest in her friend isn't so friendly? Told from the points of view of Asha, Sam, and Donnybrook itself, this suspenseful and highly original debut explores issues of ableism and classism as it delves into the mystery of what makes a person a friend and a house a home. So that's the view from the very best house in town. And um, as you said, it's coming out February 8th and uh, it's a middle grade novel. The first middle grade novel I wrote, the other one was sort of young YA. Um, and it was a story very close to my heart. And um, one of my favorite parts about drafting it, even if it was one of the hardest parts, was the fact that it was told um, from these three different points of view. And I felt like that uh, drafting it from one point of view wasn't letting me tell the story I wanted to tell. So um, really being able to delve deeply into these three characters, even though one was not actually a person, um, 
kind of allowed me to say and do things in the novel that um, let me kind of get out the story I was trying to get out, so. I should mention esteemed audience uh, who never misses an episode uh, want to make, wants to make sure that they tune in next week when I'll be chatting with Leslie Connor, uh, whose book, Anyone Here Seen Frenchie, uh, is uh, remarkably similar in some ways. It's a, it's a nice companion piece with this. I was, oh, how, how wonderful that it worked out that I, I had these two novels about uh, two sets of, of autistic children who, who are friends one of whom is moving into a new school situation and that's putting strain on their friendship. Well, oh, that dovetails nicely. So I wanted to make sure that, that, I, that I mentioned that. Um, with the view from the very best house in town, let's uh, go back. So when does this idea come to you? When do you officially start working on this book? Yeah, so it came to me slowly. I think that's a running theme of this conversation. Um, you know, um, some of it came from my own experience as a parent and looking at the gap between what we say we value in our kids um, with, you know, telling them to be kind, but also what kind of how parents own insecurities about social status and other things kind of cut against the, the messages we're kind of outwardly giving and undercut them. You know, it came to me thinking about houses and um, and how, you know, like what's the purpose of a home and, and um, you know, what do we value most about our homes, the shelter that they give us or what they tell the outside world. And all these different themes seem to dovetail. And then kind of as I implied in my first book, I tend not to write with a whole lot of plot. I tend to start with character. So I started with... Um, the character of Asha, um, an autistic girl who loves houses, um, whose friendship is breaking apart, you know, her longtime friendship with her boy, this boy, Sam. But then also um, pretty early on, if not maybe even before Asha, the voice of this McMansion that I then named Donnybrook came to me too, who's very, very pleased with um, its McMansion self. And, um, what all its turrets and other fancy features say about it. Um, so that's how it started, but I went a couple drafts at least. So there are three points of view characters, as I mentioned. I went, you know, fully through a couple drafts and something was missing. And I realized there was a lot talked about Sam, but he wasn't actually a voice in the book. And it occurred to me the story just couldn't be told without his voice and his experience too. Um, so then put in that voice, but then of course, when you have three points of view character, just from a craft perspective, you, you can't, first of all, only certain characters experience certain things. So they can only tell certain parts of the story. At the same time, you don't want to be repetitive and be telling the same incident over and over again. So then that became, even though I'm not, um, I'd say for early drafts, I'm not a plotter. Eventually I have to be like, okay, what are we doing here? You know, step by step by step and figure out um, who was telling what part of the story. And then with the house, um, although I'm saying it neatly now, I knew just instinctively and strongly that had to be a part of um, the books. There were readers who disagreed and pushed back against that and said to take it out, but it just, I didn't want to tell the story without it. It wasn't the story I wanted to tell, but if it, if it weren't there, but nailing that and figuring out like what it, 
other than as a narrator, how is this house itself, which doesn't, you know, walk and do thing and move and, you know, go to parties and go to schools like the kids do or play video games like the kids do. What is its purpose here as a character? Like, what am I really trying to do and how do I give it its own arc? So that was its own process. And then really trying to nail the voice. That wasn't something I think I did until after I signed with Molly and she helped me with that. So um, it's all yeah. a process. You started writing from the perspective of Donnie Brooke before you knew why you were doing it? my subconscious I knew <laughs> do you know what I mean um before I figured out I think I would say yeah yes I mean before I totally figured out the arc and before I totally figured out everything it would get I think you know Donnie Brooke to me and hopefully to you provided some humor and I think I like that in a story that has some sad points I really wanted that balance um But yeah, I feel like often in my stories, I just try to trust my gut and hope I'll figure it out. And sometimes, you know, what I figure out is, oh, I didn't need that or, oh, that part can go. But sometimes there was something I was working towards and it takes a few drafts for me to be like, oh yeah, that's what I was working towards. So, but in terms of, I don't want no spoilers, but if you read, like there is a whole arc and there's just, Donnie Brooke does have an arc and an ending that I did not have initially for like drafts. I mean, it took a while, Rob. <laughs> I'm always excited that, that that provides an extra level for me as a writer reading. Um, if I see another writer doing something that's, oh, this is new and interesting. I don't believe I've read a third perspective from a house before, go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. And I think one good thing, you know how I was saying way back when I did, um, so all those craft exercises with Ursula Le Guin. So she has um, an exercise where you tell the same like story, but like paragraph or two, and not, not long, but the same maybe bit of a scene from six different perspectives. And I and none of them are a house. They're like, you know, a, a fly on the wall third, a close third, a first, I can't even remember them all now. But I do think... Um, I guess I've given up on the idea that my drafting is going to be an efficient process. So, <laughs> so I think I was like, you know, writing from this house feels right to me and it's funny and I'm cracking myself up with some of this and it's clearly getting out something I need to get out and I'm trying to put on paper. So I'm just going to do this and, you know, fingers crossed that it's going to go somewhere. But I think for most writers, I mean, you, yeah, sometimes you have to kill your darling. Sometimes your favorite sentences don't work with the plot, whatever. But you also have to be inspired by your, what you're writing mostly. You have to be excited to be doing most of it. I mean, there's always some work and some piecing it together that might not be that exciting. But, you know, none of us know how it's going to turn out, if it's going to get published. And even if it is, it's like too much of your heart, I think, and brain space that if you're not excited about it, sort of like, What's the point? So I, I went with it. And then I had early readers and some of my family members who loved the house too, so that they they cheered me on significantly, which was helpful too. And I was like, is this, you know, crazy? They're like, it's great. I mean, they're also um they're also like, yeah, I mean, of course you're gonna have to clean it up. I mean, if they're not they, <laughs> 
they aren't, um, they don't just tell me everything's great, which just makes it even better. But they were like, no, that's, you know, you got something there. And, and I liked it. So when I did though, have readers say like, um, no, you should take out the house. And why do you have the house? And, you know, then my cheering squad at home would be like, you can't get rid of the house. The house is the best part. So, um, yeah, but yes, I, I did put it in without entirely knowing what I was doing. Well, worst case scenario, if you were getting words on the page and teasing out the story, you go back through, you take out the house part and you still have a draft that gets you where you're going and you scratch that itch that you always wanted to write from the perspective of a house. Exactly. An important point you made that because of the uncertainty of publishing, you don't know how a book's going to do. You don't know if there's going to be a shipping shortage and or a pandemic impacting you while you're looking at publishing. If you're not enjoying the process of creating the thing, that, I mean, that's the reward. The, exactly. You want all the newberries later and they make great movies out of your stuff. Well, that's that's all icing on the cake. But the cake is the experience, right, of, of, of enjoying writing. hundred percent. Exactly. 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 How long uh, does a story like this take you for that, that first draft? Okay, so we're using draft in like the loosest sense of the word. <laughs> sure. The loosest sense. Uh, maybe a couple months, you know, but it might not have an ending, right? It didn't have that whole third character it needed. So I would say each draft takes between two and three and a half months, probably. And then I take a break. What does that look like in terms of your daily writing activity? Yeah, so depending on where I am, so so this is all before I get to like just revision and that might look differently, but I will usually set a weekly goal of words. So usually my weekly goal is 7,500. Usually I do more than that, but sometimes I don't. Um, with a 5,000 word minimum. So it's like, I mean, unless I get like really, really sick, but let's say I come down with something for like a 24 hour bug or something like that's fine. I'm not going to write, let's say I have to be a med, but I still want to hit a minimum of 5,000 words for the week, kind of no matter what, but really 7,500 for the week, which is, um, and then, but that also doesn't include time I might spend researching or, you know, doing other writing related stuff or maybe drafting on the side. At the same time, I, I lie to myself, like I will um, write and then I will literally write in all caps, this isn't working, how about this? And I might rewrite the dialogue. If I need the boost, I will count those as words. So like I might get to 8,500 or 9,000 words for the week, but some of those words are definitely coming out because they are literally all caps notes to myself. But you know, with writing, as you said, you have to do it for yourself. And sometimes you have to trick yourself because it's really hard. And if that helps you feel good about getting to it next week, give yourself the grace you need to to get to the next week is my, my uh, philosophy. But I do that. So um, I will usually write during the day because I don't um, work outside the home. And so that's the best time. But sometimes the days are busy. And if I have to write in the evening or on the weekend, uh, actually, I usually write on the weekends. You know, but if I have to not go out to dinner sometimes because I'm like, I've got to hit my word counter, I've got to get this done, I, I do that. Like when I'm writing and I have those counts, I take them quite seriously. Um, and I sort of do that till I get to the end of the draft, which is, you know, usually um, 
And as I said, there, there might be weeks I don't do it. There also might be weeks I do a lot of research, for example, or I realize like this is a mess structurally, but I really want to go back and redo this structurally. And so that, you know, or I cut out those notes and suddenly my word counts dropped a lot because 300 of those words <laughs> for that day weren't real words. And then I have to, and then I'll make myself add it up. But, but then I get that done. And then I, um, just try to do something else for like a couple months, maybe work on a different writing project, maybe do all that reading that I talked. And when I'm writing, I don't read if at all possible, because I just need to be completely immersed in the world of my book. And I found when I read, if I'm writing, I, um, I can lose my voice, like my character's voice or whatever. And so often when I'm writing, I'm just in writing mode. And then I go into like, voracious reading mode, you know, catching up with people, doing all sorts of other writing related stuff, maybe writing a shorter book, like a picture book or a chapter book. Right now I'm trying my hand at a short story, which I also actually don't know how to write. So if you have any good recommendations on short story resources, I will take them. But like, I'll try something very different, something that just lets me clear my head so that when I come back to the next draft, I can, um, approach it really freshly and really try to see what it needs. And I've found when I try, like I've tried to take a two week break because like, no, no, I have to get this done. And it's just a waste of my time. I'm too close to it to revise it. Well, I just can't see what it needs. Or if I see what it needs, I can't figure out how to implement it. Whereas when I take the breaks, it's like, oh, of course. So. It's that time to get just some perspective. So if you're, you're reading when you're, do you read when you revise? Or write another draft, or is it just that first draft where you have to quit call it quits with books? Yeah, you know, when I, I don't read, so when I'm actively drafting like those couple months, I tend not to read, or I, unless, I certainly won't read other middle grade. There, I might read outside, like I might read something like adult or something very different, but I really try not to read. But then like, I might read five books a week or something a week when I'm not writing. Like I will read just like a ton when I'm not um and be like taking notes and really, really getting into it. So I found that works, but, and, and what I, I, what I might do, I'm talking about reading a book straight. So let's say there's like a text where I'm like, this was really helpful for me to understand, like what we were talking about before. I might have a book where I'm rereading a chapter or two to try to understand how they did it and doing that kind of reading, sort of like a mentor text analysis. But I'm talking about reading just like where I'm taking in a book for the first time. I won't do that while I'm writing because my brain, it's hard for my brain to work kind of on both cylinders. Do audiobooks make that any easier? Nope, that's just the same problem. Nope, same problem. Because it's really about me holding on to the voice of the book and the voice of, you know, the characters. And I, I get, I start subconsciously. It's like, I don't know if you've ever, you know, if you go somewhere else and you start taking on a little bit of the accent of that region just by being around it, I feel like that's a little bit like when I'm reading other um, books, especially if they have a strong voice, I might, you know, just slip in a little bit of that in a way that, um, I mean, it's honestly, it's a tribute to the other book that it's so gets in my head so much, but it's probably not the best thing for my writing in terms of what I'm trying to the project I'm trying to execute. That is also not true. As I said, um, that's really for like the novels I've written. You know, if I'm, 
Um, I I'm trying my hand at a chapter book that I could totally read when I was writing that. I'm not sure why, but maybe because I'm, I feel like the books I've written, the world is like very, it's somewhat different. It's sort of somewhat all encompassing. I just have to kind of let my brain just be there. And, and that's also part of the reason I do take long breaks between my books. I mean, one, I think I revise much better, but also like, you know, not reading and being like, no matter what, I have to hit this goal and all of that. Like that's, that's only fun for a little, <laughs> like it's fun when you're doing it, but usually by the time I get to the end of the draft, usually about a week or so before I get to the end of the draft, I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I really got to fit it like I am reaching the end of my endurance but then I take a long break and then I'm like okay let's do this again and then you know the process goes on so how many drafts uh did the view from the very best house in town take you from uh, start to finish before you're before you're getting editors involved in yeah I like five so I had a draft for so I had... time pardon so each for about two months at a time or? So some were longer, some were, yeah. So, so um, maybe, and then five and then maybe one with my agent, although that wasn't as significant. Or, that wasn't like a, that wasn't like a rewrite. It was working on specific chapters. Um, so yeah, some of them though, like took longer, like, um, the draft where I was really honing in on like who's telling what from what point of view. But then I also, so I actually, that one, I'm counting it as one draft, but I actually, in my notes, I have like draft four and draft 4.5. So you could count those as two because what I did, and I don't know, have you interviewed Laura Chauvin? She wrote on um, the last fifth grade of Emerson Elementary and she writes in verse, but the last fifth grade of Emerson Elementary, I think has 18 points of view. And I attended a workshop with her um, and she talked about pulling out like each point of view separately. So I think I wrote it, but then I did kind of a draft where I pulled out, you know, all the Sam chapters and read them through just to make sure the voice and the arc and everything just in that, like that they could stand alone kind of as a group. And then I pulled out all the Asha chapters and did the same. And then I pulled out all the Burke chapters and did the same. So I wasn't, I mean, it took a while. I thought it would be quick. That took, I mean, so I think the, the draft of that, that draft took maybe four and a half months. If you include both sections, it was like three months of drafting, but then another month of a half, a half of really making sure each character's point of view, you know, was kind of the same thing I said about, I can't really read someone else's work. If I'm drafting Asha and Sam at the same time am I slipping in there you know am I am I crossing voices a little bit am I using one phrase you know one phrase that the other one might use you know and the other does that make sense am I putting a little bit of Asha's voice in Sam's chapter or vice versa so I really wanted to take some time to really be careful that you know if I'm writing separate points of view that they were distinct um so yeah yeah about two three months but as I said like after a while, like, so that I remember I finished that when I thought I'd finish it in May, it actually finished in June. And I was like, okay, take me on vacation. So I'm done. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, but you know, for that book then, because I was querying and everything all over again, um, 
And we had had some back and forth with my original agent who is like a wonderful person, but we just um, saw differently on this um, book and she was even willing to sell it, but it was clear we were just coming at it from different places. And so, um, so I made, you know, the decision um, to, to part ways and find another agent, but in terms of getting put like that adds a whole bunch of, right? Like in terms, like it queering, at least for me, has never been a fast process particularly. So in terms of, you know, the road to publication and how long that takes, that definitely adds um, time. What, uh, when, you, when you did, for anybody who might be in a similar situation, when it's time to part ways with your friends, since it sounds like it was amicable and peaceful, what tips do you have for how you were able to go about that that made that transition easier? Well, I think one is it's going to be a somewhat tough transition and especially if you like the person, but I think um, one thing to remember, and this helped me a lot is that it's actually, you know, it's one of those like dirty secrets of publishing. It's actually really common. Um, lots of people have had more than one agent in their career for whatever reason. And like, that's okay. That happens all the time. I mean, for me, Molly is, such a great fit editorially from a business perspective. She's just a wonderful person um, that I click with. So um, in the end, it's okay. I think part of it is remembering what we were saying earlier that you're writing for the joy of it. And if you're in a position where you're thinking of switching agents, I mean, often it is because if it's amicable, it's because you're seeing you might not be seeing eye to eye on the direction of your work. And again, I want to say my agent would have been supportive. Um, so, and she's a great person, but in the end, the point of this relationship is to support you and your work. And obviously you also, you know, they're supporting you and you want to be a good client to them too. It's a partnership, but if someone isn't understanding your work, like to me, that's sort of the first step, right? People need to understand and be enthusiastic about your work to represent your work. And so you have like it, a lot of times, I mean, I know myself, I was like, well, maybe it doesn't really matter, but of course it matters. That's the whole reason you have an agent, that's, you know, and, and kind of take a step back. Like, why did I want this in the first place? Oh yeah. Someone who could be excited about my work and help me sell my work. And so I think to remember that. So you want to know what really helped me actually though. That's why I kind of interrupted my train of thought there. What helped me the most was having writer friends who I could just talk to and who could be like, yeah, this is hard and help me through it and remind me that this happened and um, was common and could help me with my query letter. And the other thing I did that my writer friends um, were kind of related is I became a author mentor match mentor. That's where I read, um, I mentored a YA novel that's that YA novel that I was mentioning before that's just incredible and I really, really hope gets published one day. Um, and then my good friend Maria Fraser, who um, just had an audio book come out in the Audible, um, Margarita in the Spotlight, she asked if I would be a Pitch Wars mentor, apply to be a Pitch Wars co-mentor with her. Um, so we mentored. So I think the other thing that helped me a lot through that transition was just remembering that my identity as a writer wasn't tied up in this one work and this one relationship, 
but that, you know, I had something to give if I was mentoring other writers and being a part of this community and kind of helped remind me that like who I am as a writer isn't tied up in this one thing, but there's a lot I have to give and that I have other books in me, if, you know, this one didn't work out and just kind of taking the broad view because I think so often because this industry is so hard to predict, we're like, we got to do this. We've got to do this. We've got to do this. And actually stepping back and, you know, giving back a little bit and meeting more people and becoming a part of the community and giving myself a little breathing space, I think made that transition a lot easier for me than if I had just been kind of in my study. I mean, I did this too, but frantically looking at query tracker all the time and frantically, you know, you know, I, I worked very hard on my query letter, but only doing that, I think can kind of be, it can be not that much fun and coming back to what was fun about writing, which is the writing, but also, you know, I don't know, you've met more of them than I have, but I feel like, you know, middle grade writers and YA writers are just in general, just a wonderful group of people and being around them can um, get you excited about the whole enterprise again. So. No, I agree. I think writers and book people are the best people on earth. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> if you come on the show and you've written a book, you've already got me a hello. I'm I'm half in the back for for how wonderful you be <laughs> just to have done that. <laughs> well, I'm, uh, watching our our time, and I see that we're we're right about where we 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 said we did this, which is um, uh, too bad. Uh, a great conversation uh, just flies by. Um, a steam audience knows that we can't get out of here without me asking because I ask everybody. Uh, Mira, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? I have not yet seen either. Have you? Um, yes, I have uh, seen what I believe to be a ghost, and I have attempted to tell that story on this show a couple of times, and it's it's not appropriate for a middle grade audience, and every time I've attempted, I've cut it out, but uh, it was enough to make me go, hmm, clearly, that I well, hosting this show, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm talking to the most brilliant, wonderful people on earth, and that I'm I've I've heard so many compelling ghost stories that like oh these aren't dummies these these aren't crazies I'm talking to these are smart genuinely brilliant people that have just wrote, in many cases written a book that I've very much enjoyed before I'm talking to them and who have also seen a ghost so I went from maybe they're ghosts maybe they're not at the start of the show to now I'm a hundred percent team ghost that's that's uh -huh. obviously a thing just too many brilliant witnesses have now told me ghost stories that that that's got to be true. What about flying saucer? Uh, flying saucers, I'm I'm 100% on. I have seen one. My grandmother saw one when I was oh. very young, and my grandmother would not lie to me. Uh, and that story I can tell briefly. She was uh, driving home from Illinois here to Indiana, and she got a speeding ticket. And so the conjecture has always been, this is the bullcrap story she told my grandpa for why they had to pay a speeding ticket. But she said that uh, a, a ball of light came and flew up alongside of the car and just kept pace with her. Uh, for about 20 miles and so she went faster and faster and she couldn't keep uh, uh she she couldn't shake it and finally it just lost interest and flew off uh, and she continued to go because she was so freaked out and she was just flooring it all the way to Indiana and that's and eventually she got stopped um, and when she told me that story my grandmother uh loved a good joke and, and you know she would she 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 would was all about if there was a magic trick and we could have some fun she would play along she was on board with yeah of course Santa Claus is real why would you ever think otherwise 
But when she told that story, she was reluctant about it and she was nervous. And you could see that, oh, this is a traumatic thing that really happened to you and you don't like talking about it. The only, I, I suspect part of the only reason she told anybody that it ever happened was because she, she had that stupid speeding ticket that, that provided the evidence that something had come up. If not for that, she might have just uh, gone home and you know, when everyone said, hey, how was the trip? She said, fine, fine, and just shut it down. And by the next day, she'd have convinced herself that that was something that didn't happen. And even if it did happen, we're never going to talk about it. But, but because of that ticket, the, the truth came out. And I learned that at a young age. And I was like, oh, this is for 100% for certain a thing that happened. And if it happened to you, I bet it happened to other people. I Now that the what the Pentagon has released on information that they're actively working on recovered flying saucers, I don't know why this is still a point of conjecture. Like, the, the, I used to ask people, do you believe in flying saucers? It doesn't matter. It's, it's a thing. <laughs> That's, we're, we're, we're past that. Now I just want to know if you've seen one. <laughs> So, but you say you saw one too? Uh, no, I haven't. Uh, I've, I've seen some weird things, uh, but nothing that I could definitively say was anything other than a misinterpreted plane. <laughs> it's on my bucket list. I would love to see one uh, before I go. Uh, and the rated uh, disclosure is coming. I think we're all going to see them before too terribly long. So Excellent. That's, uh, <laughs> that's the topic oh. for the show. <laughs> But yeah, no, just um, there's there's enough smoke that there there for me there's no doubt that there is some kind of fire. There's just too many brilliant people on record about things that they've seen, and an argument that bums me out is not bums me out that annoys me is that an argument I heard Steven Spielberg of all people make, um, you know, director of Close Encounters yeah. of the Third Kind, say that well I wonder where are all the now that everybody's got a cell phone in their pocket. Where are all the videos of flying saucers? And I heard that. I was like, have you been on YouTube? It's like the second most popular video category. <laughs> Watch montages of flying saucers on YouTube that people have recorded with their phones and other devices. They're like, well, why do they come out blurry? Like, what if you watch any sporting event? And they're trying to fill just a ball from, you know, uh, a couple of uh, um, a few feet away, they're still using the most uh, advanced telescopic camera ever. And your cell phone, if you try to film a streetlight or a star at night, it's 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 crap. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so totally. A lot of the videos are, are are blurry, but there's there's so many of them, and there are so many reputable people that have come out, presidents who've come out and said that yes, this is absolutely a thing. That it would be um, shocking to me if it were to be revealed that it were not a thing. Not that anyone could ever make that pronouncement. Uh, but if they did, I'd be like, really? And if they did, if that were to happen, I would still not regret the time I spent enjoying and entertaining the, the, the idea that maybe there would be. But, ah, it's too bad that turned out to not to be true, but what a lovely story. <laughs> well, my uh, last question for you, Mervyn, thank you uh, so much for, for being here and for talking with me about writing this. It's just been a lovely conversation. And I'm assuming you've got uh, more books uh, on the way. Do you know what the what the next thing is at this point? I think so. I can't talk about it, but I did um, was working on a second book. So um, hopefully, hopefully soon we'll have uh, some news on that. Um, Fingers crossed. And when we know more, come back. We'll do this again. I would love that. I would love that. Well, my uh, final question for today um, is, 
if there was some bit of advice you could go back and give to yourself toward the start of your career, middle of your career, wherever it would have been uh, useful to you, that would have made a difference for your writing career and might make a difference for everybody who's watching or listening to us now, what would you go back and tell yourself? So two things that both I've touched on here. The first, kind of taking the meta advice about advice picture is when you're getting advice, you know, especially from others, remember that you know your work better than anyone else and you should absolutely strive to get better and, you know, strive to become a better writer and we can always do that. But you know what the heart of your work is or you can try to find the heart of your work and you don't want to let anyone take that away from you. You should be writing, as we talked about, about what brings you joy, about what you want to say. Um, and that's like, to me, the first principle of writing. And then everything else in terms of feedback can come from that, but you want to start with, you know, what's in your heart. And the second thing is just that you have time, like this is a journey, but you don't have to do it all at once. It's okay if you write something and it doesn't sell. It's okay if you, you know, get 60 pages in and you're like, ah, this book is really not working because one, you're learning something every time you do that. And two, it's only by, I think, taking some risks and trying new things that, um, and this is to me, other people might have it easier, but that you can really find the voice of your work and find what you're trying to say. So don't be afraid to take the time to take those risks. That is the perfect note to end on. Where uh, can esteemed audience find you online, follow you on social media and all that good stuff? I am, my website is miratrahan.com and I'm on Twitter at writemira, W-R-I-T-E-M-E-E-R-A. And as always, esteemed audience, for more information about me and more importantly, interviews with thousands of literary agents, including Molly Kerhan uh, and many other uh, authors, editors, all the world's best people, go to middlegreatninja.com, download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. It will change your life. And God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week. Thank you.